Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Alphabet Murders. It's a crime spree that has stumped investigators for decades. The brutal murders of three Rochester girls in the early 1970s have never been solved. Each victim was around the same age, 10 or 11 years old. They were all abducted from Rochester, sexually assaulted, and strangled. Their bodies dumped in or near a town that started with the same initial as their first and last names. Carmen Cologne found near Churchville, Wanda Wachowicz in Webster, and Michelle Mayenza in Macedon. This is one of the biggest cases in Monroe County history. I grew up in Rochester, New York, and remember well the double initial murders. My guest today on Murder Most Foul is true crime author Michael Benson. He's here to discuss his book, Nightmare in Rochester, The Double Initial Murders. Welcome, Michael. Good morning, James. So, Michael, before we get started, why don't you tell my audience how you uh, got involved with uh, writing uh, true crime books? My, my career as a uh, crime writer has an origin story. When I was nine years old, uh, my babysitter and her friend from down the road uh, were horribly murdered. Jack the Ripper murder scene, mutilated with a knife. And the murder took place behind my house, uh, back by Black Creek. And uh, they never caught the killer. Um, Arthur Shawcross, I guess, was one of the suspects. And uh, I grew up in terror. I, I, I couldn't look out a window at night because I figured that there was... Uh, a psycho killer looking back in. I grew up, became a crime writer, not a coincidence, and in 2011, I went back to Rochester. I uh, teamed up with private investigator Donald Tubman, and and together we uh, performed a, uh, a fresh investigation of the murders, came up with a suspect, thrust the investigation in a startling new direction, and I wrote a book about it called the Devil at Genesee Junction, and it's a great book, my, you know, my, my masterwork. And when I was doing the, um, the publicity tour for it around the Rochester area, someone asked me right in front of everybody, what are you going to do for an encore? And I said, <laughs> well, you know, Don and I would really like to sink our teeth into the double initial murders. And there was this, this burst of excitement, and at that point I knew I had to do it. And once again, we've uh, we've come up with some stuff that the public didn't know before. I know this is often said, but it is a page turner, uh, easy to read, uh, laid out without a you know a lot of flim and fanfare. It's just there, love and great pictures and whatnot. All right, let's get to the case at hand, which uh, sure. we we will again get into um, a double initials. We'll also get into the fact that there was this is nothing new, but this is not the first. Uh, case that that at least um, coincidentally or on purpose, the victims not in a whole different place, in another state, the victims uh, initials were uh, first name, last name were the same. So we are talking, though, about the Rochester case, which uh, includes, uh, I believe, an order of murder. Uh, I don't want to be callous about it, but there, some of this is just very uh, dry and clinical was Carmen Cologne, Wanda Walkowitz. And Michelle Mayenza. If, if there had not been a, a series of killings, Carmen Cologne's murder would still have been one of the most startling and horrible in Rochester history. Uh, she's a 10-year-old uh, Puerto Rican girl, did not speak much English. She was mentally handicapped. She, she wasn't verbal much at all. And when she did speak, it was mostly Spanish. And on November 16, 1971, her mother sent her around the corner onto Main Street West, now known as West Main Street, uh, to the drugstore to pick up a prescription for her baby sister who had an earache. 
And for the first time ever, Carmen walked the city streets by herself. She made it to the drugstore just fine. She spoke to the druggist. He said, this is a Medicare prescription. It's going to be about a half hour. Could you please come back? I'm sure Carmen had no idea what any of that meant and was probably promptly abducted at that point. Um, now, the thing that, that burned this into the, the city's communal nightmare was that about an hour after her disappearance, uh, she apparently wriggled free from her abductor or abductors and jumped out of the car at a rest area off of what was then known as the Western Expressway, outside of Churchville, a rest area with a reputation as a spot for illicit sex. And naked from the waist down and holding her pants in one hand, she ran hysterically alongside what is now known as Interstate 490 toward heavy oncoming rush hour traffic, screaming for help. Dozens of motorists went by and saw her. No one stopped. She was presumably caught and dragged back. Now, eyewitnesses' accounts varied, but most agreed that it was a luxury car, a Cadillac or a Ford LTD, which is why we have a Cadillac on the cover of the book. Um, one man who was haunted by the memory of that drive home was Nick Zook, a successful ad man from Scottsdale, New York. He was 27 at the time, and he was plagued by, by thoughts of what if, you know, because he, he, like everybody else, he didn't stop. People didn't have cell phones at the time. Those that did call the police didn't call until quite, you know, after they got home. Um, he said that he had seen a Cadillac parked beside the expressway, uh, saw the little girl running naked, and in the car were two adults. And as he passed, he saw a woman get out of the passenger side of the car. Um, so indication that we're not dealing with a lone killer here. Uh, Carmen was found on November 18th, two days later, by two boys who were joyriding on a small Suzuki motorcycle. And uh, when, when they saw it, they, they were hoping it was only a doll. But when they went to inspect further, they found that it was Carmen. Uh, her body was off the side of the road on a particularly desolate section. The reason they were riding the motorcycle there in the first place is because there weren't any houses around. The chance of getting caught by the sheriff were practically nil. Um, so they, they rode back to, uh, to their home, and uh, the sheriff called and came and... Uh, that was that was the end of Carmen. That all of these drill motors had an opportunity to save her and didn't. Really, really haunted Rochester at the time. And I would like to, to, to just quickly say that psychologically, uh, they probably shouldn't feel as guilty as they do or did, because if someone had stopped, there's at least a 50-50 that they would have helped the adult catch the child. All, of the, all right. of the adult had to say was, that's my niece. We let her out to go to the bathroom. She's, she's mentally not well. Could you help us catch her? And that's what would have happened. And uh, again, not getting into um, the grisly details, simply, you know, police report she was strangled and she was sexually um, assaulted and she was raped. And, right. and she was covered. She was covered with fingernail scratches. Another indication that there was perhaps a woman involved in the attack. And of course, the police involved themselves immediately. And because, as I, I stated a little bit ago, that this was the first, you know, uh, blush crime of this, you know, at this time, there wasn't a, a, a sequence or serial killer in anyone's mind. They focused on the family. And I believe that, the, uh, that there was a gentleman, Car uh, not Carmen, but a, a Cologne last name was that uh, a father, or an uncle, someone who they turned some attention to. The whole family stuck around to answer questions by the police, except for uh, Uncle Miguel, who, <clears throat> who fled. We went all the way back to, to Puerto Rico and telling somebody before he left that he had done something wrong and he had to get out of town. And this you know, drew immediate attention from the detectives. And they went to Puerto Rico and they brought him back. And it turned out, um, and some of this we just found out during our own investigation, it turned out that he never said that he had hurt Carmen. He had been told by his older brother, Justiano, that uh, that. He, because he was living with a woman, Carmen's mother, who was on welfare, 
that he was guilty of a crime, so he better get out of town. That was the thing he had done wrong. And Hustiano, which, and this is the part that really makes the, the hairs on the back of the neck go up, he was Carmen's biological father and had impregnated Carmen's mother when she was 13 years old. Mm. And now it's 10 years later, and he's still around and has access to Carmen. But, you know, there's a chance that the uh, the, the police were, were so focused on Miguel that they didn't look at uh, other members of the family who might have had more to say about what happened. Now, at the time, of course, this did, you know, Rochester and the Rochester environs, for those who don't know, I mean, it's it's not a tiny town. It's not a big town. It's a reasonably sized city, but the suburbs are, are smaller and very, uh, you know, family, uh, you know, family house, whatever. Uh, and uh, this did shock the entire uh, city and to the point where, um, of course, the police are looking for tips. The police look at, did anyone see anything, whatnot? And one of the things that I do very vividly remember were the billboards. Right. Well, there's a fellow named Mike Macaluso who ran Citizens for a Decent Community, basically a um, an anti-porn organization. And uh, he financed uh, billboards that had picture of Carmen Cologne. And uh, if you know what happened to her, please contact this hotline number and said, please help before it happens again. And it's a part of the, uh, the zeitgeist, I guess, of the, of the, of the situation, the, uh, that this was the beginning of something that, that was going to be a series of events. Uh, on a wooden door in a men's room on the sixth floor of Sibley's department building in downtown Rochester, uh, someone scrawled, I killed a 10-year-old girl, stop me before I kill again. I can tell you, in 1966, when my babysitter and her friend were murdered, uh, there was no suggestion that this was anything other than a one-off. But Rochester was was given the sense, you know, please help before it happens again. Other little girls are going to be in danger. It received a lot of uh, press coverage. The the little piece of graffiti was known by everybody, Mm -hmm. which put it in Rochester's head speaking collectively, that (laughs) this was the beginning of a series of events, which is exactly what it turned out to be. Uh, And when the second murder did take place, there was, again, billboards put up by the citizens for a decent community, and they began, it happened again. Right. Well, that's a good segue into, uh, tell us the time uh, period uh, between discovering the body of Carmen Cologne and then the second uh, murder, which then became very clear, the MO was was as near to identical as you can be, um, Wanda Walkowitz. Well, time went by. 1972 came and went. And on April 2nd, 1973, uh, a little redheaded girl with freckles, fifth grader at Rochester's school late, named Wanda Walkowitz, uh, was running an errand for her mother. Uh, she was sent to the store to pick up groceries, and almost as identical distance that Carmen had been sent, uh, one turn to the right and then crossing a couple of streets that weren't hard to cross. Uh, she went to the, uh, the hillside deli, picked up the groceries, and was returning home with a big bag of groceries, almost as big as her. At one point, she had to stop and lean up against uh, the, the, fed, the school, schoolyard fence to get a better grip. And uh, she was seen by three or four people who knew her, and you couldn't miss her because of her red hair. Uh, everybody looked away and then looked back, and she was gone, along with the bag of groceries. Now, at the time, people were a little bit critical of her mother, Joyce, who was a widow. Uh, Joyce was a drinker. She had a series of boyfriends. Um, so there, there, was, there was thinking that, Maybe one of them might have been involved. But the the boyfriends all seemed like okay guys. They were all drinkers, but nobody seemed like a pervert. Um, And Wanda was a a tough kid. She was uh, remembered by her friends as uh, as being a a (laughs) two-fisted little girl who didn't take guff from anybody. And it happened on a rainy day. And just as was the case with Carmen, it was a late afternoon on a school day, about 5 o'clock. And uh, 
part of the story that, that most people don't remember is that less than 48 hours before Wanda disappeared, she was involved in another incident. She and her friend Linda were walking down a street in the neighborhood uh, a block away from Conkey Avenue, and they were chased by a man with a buckle on his shoe. That was the only thing they noticed about him. And they ran, he followed, and they got to Wanda's house and ran up the stairs, and the man came into the house and stood at the bottom of the stairs and said, next time I'm going to get you. Oh, my God. Now, the, the, the incident was, was so was serious enough that Linda's mother called the police. So there's a police report, and Linda was no longer allowed to go out at night or by herself. But Wanda, because her mother was who she was, had errands to run and then chores to do. And uh, less than two days later, she was once again out on the streets, and she didn't make it home. Now, the um, one of the other MOs, if you will, about this uh, case so far, and we will get again to the discovery of Wanda, they, the bodies were both found in, in the same uh, not area necessarily, I'm not sure, but but certainly the same uh, terrain. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, the, 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 the dump sites, pardon right. the expression, but that's what we call them, right. um, were all in areas where uh, the, the killer could work unobserved. Um, the Carmen was found on a desolate stretch of road. Uh, Michelle later on was found on a stretch of road with only a couple of houses. There was a little more traffic where Wanda was found, but it was a rest area, so it was off the main road. And she was, again, rolled down a hill and was found pretty quickly. She was, the, of the three, she was found the quickest. The next day, a, uh, a man, uh, state trooper Thomas Zimmer, was driving along Route 104 in Webster and saw something white down on the hillside and went to investigate what it was, and it was uh, Wanda in, in her white dress. So there were obvious similarities between Carmen and Wanda. Both girls were alone on the street, running errands for their mother on a weekday after school. Both had taken routes that involved one right-hand turn, had gotten to their destination, and were returning home when they disappeared. But there were differences as well. Wanda was bruised but not scratched. Uh, the Monroe County Medical Examiner, Dr. Edland, performed the autopsy and verified she'd been raped and strangled, possibly with a belt, uh, from a profiling point of view, psychological point of view. Big difference was Carmen was strangled from in front, face to face. Uh, Wanda was strangled from behind. Uh, Dr. Edland also found custard in Wanda's stomach, uh, and it was a mystery where she'd gotten it. Uh, the assumption was she must have been given the food by her killer. Uh, Carmen had been found exposed. She still didn't have her pants on, and Wanda had been redressed after her rape. So it's certainly um, possible, for whatever reason, uh, the the killer uh, it may not have even uh, you know done it to hide anything, but just you know after this particular one, so well, you know I'll decide to dress her. Uh, you know, uh, there's no reason to think he was trying to to, to cover that. Didn't cover much of the mo. Or, or Wanda was allowed to redress herself right. after the rape, but before the murder. Right. That also makes sense. Um, yeah. And uh, there was, again, there was a hotline. There was one very uh, interesting eyewitness called in on the hotline and said that he had seen a white man of medium height forcing a red-haired girl into a light-colored Dodge Dart at Avenue D and Conkey Avenue. Between 5.30 and 6 o'clock on Monday evening, a uh, man had a knife, and despite pleas in the papers, the witness never called back. So it, 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 they didn't know what to make of that. But then there was another eyewitness who called in and said that they'd seen a similar car near the, uh, the dump site in the town of Webster, so that there was a be on the lookout for Dodge Darts. Uh, but uh, most of the calls... Uh, were not helpful. There were a lot of people trying to get their enemies in trouble, ex-wives trying to get their exes in trouble, that sort of thing, and armchair detectives with wacky theory. Unfortunately, um, the tips and the investigation by authorities did not lead to a suspect or an arrest, 
And unfortunately, there was a third little girl who was killed in a similar way. On November 26, 1973, it was the Monday after Thanksgiving when 10-year-old Michelle Mianza disappeared. Uh, the difference this time is that the killer was seen at least three times and perhaps as many as five. Michelle was chubby and slow. She had hazel eyes and shoulder-length brown hair, and she was a pupil at School 33 on Webster Avenue. Uh, before that, she'd attended Corpus Christi School on Main Street East. By all accounts, Michelle's last day of school had been a rough one. She'd been teased relentlessly during recess, so severely that she had to leave her classroom and spend most of the afternoon crying in the nurse's office. To make matters worse, she and her primary tormentor had been made to stay after school, so when Michelle's mom came to pick her and her sister up, Michelle was not released. Mom walked the sister home and left Michelle to fend for herself. So again, we have a, a, a little girl who's on the streets of Rochester for the first time all by herself. Um, now, she was seen walking uh, in the direction of her home um, on along Webster Avenue. We know she took a right and went towards the, uh, the Goodman Shopping Plaza where her mother had lost her purse a couple of days earlier. And the theory is that Michelle was maybe going to help look for the purse. But she was seen by a girl she knew, they'd gone to Corpus Christi together, that we call Cynthia Nicoletti. Uh, Cynthia knew Michelle and uh, was on her way to a friend's house. Uh, Cynthia went and visited her friend and was walking back towards her own home when she was she saw a car speeding down the street and almost hit her. She had to step back in order not to be hit. Uh, she saw the driver, she saw the, the man's face, and in the back seat, she saw Michelle at the window crying. Now, Cynthia went home and, and hid in the closet with her dress-up bag, and her mother came and said, what's the matter? And she said, I, I, I saw Michelle Mayenza really upset. I think somebody stole her. Mm-hmm. And the mother didn't, uh, didn't report it right away. But when word came out that Michelle was missing, the police were called. Um, Cynthia said that uh, there was a light-colored car. And police didn't pay much attention to her at first but then a second motorist came forward and said i saw the car pull out of that street onto webster avenue i almost hit it i had to slam on my brakes i remember the little girl standing on the corner uh it was a beige pinto now i've looked at pictures of dodge darts and pintos and chances are they're talking about the same car but what we have here is, you know, Cynthia Nicoletti, who saw the killer's face. So one of the first things we did in our investigations, we, we found her. And she told us that for a few days, you know, after the other motorist had verified that she'd seen what she'd seen, uh, she would get into police cars and they would drive her around the neighborhood looking for the car or the man she saw driving the car. So that's the first witness who saw the killer. Now, the second was a woman who pulled into the Panorama Plaza on Penfield Road. Um, it was late that afternoon, the afternoon of, of Michelle's disappearance, at a Carol's fast food restaurant. Uh, you remember we had Carol's. Oh, we had I remember Don, Carol's. Yeah. And uh, she parked in the parking lot alongside a light-colored, possibly beige Plymouth Duster. <laughs> Again, we're, we're, we're dealing with a, a, a similar car either a 1971 or 72 Plymouth Duster. And the car had a young girl in it. Um, when the witness got out and walked toward the restaurant, she saw a man exiting, carrying a bag of food and a, uh, a coffee cup. She passed him. And he, she looked at him closely enough to see that he had dirty hands. And he got into the car with the little girl and drove off. Now, this all becomes more sinister when at Michelle's autopsy, they, they find that she had eaten McDonald's or Carol's food. Uh, before she died. 
Now, the third eyewitness is a good Samaritan who stopped because a car on the country road in Macedon was parked off the shoulder. In the car was a man and a little girl. The man tried to hide the girl, holding her at the wrists, and angrily told the good Samaritan he was just trying to change a flat tire and to go away. Now, on December 2nd, 2018, I chatted online with a woman who had just purchased Nightmare in Rochester and said, boy, you sure are being dramatic. I saw the killer's car and it was no Cadillac. (laughs) I asked her to explain explain what what, what she meant by that. And then we ended up having a phone conversation. And she lived on Eddy Road in uh, in Walworth, right on the Walworth Massive town line. And when she looked out her kitchen window, she saw a car that night parked, and uh, it was you know, a piece of crap American-built car. It was not a Cadillac. Uh, she remembered it as having square headlights and saw a man's trousers go back and forth in front of the headlights a couple of times. And it was there for a while. And her mother said, oh, it's probably just teenagers making out, which only made her observe the car more closely. But after a while, the, the, the car drove off. But uh, her point was that uh, whoever was driving the Cadillac uh, that was seen with Carmen Cologne uh, had downgraded the vehicle by the time we got to Michelle Lanza, assuming it was the same person. The day after Michelle's body is found, by uh, found fully clothed, again, allowed to redress, probably, or redressed, um, about eight feet from the north shoulder, shoulder of Eddy Road in the town of Macedon, just in Macedon. Body was found by uh, Walworth Volunteer Fire Department uh, firefighter Eugene Vandewall, who was nice enough to come to one of our presentations and then talk to me about what he'd seen. And then there was one more eyewitness. On December 1st, so three, three days later, a security guard at the Gannett Building, where uh, the Rochester Democrat Chronicle and Times Union were published, um, re- reported an encounter with a nervous and shifty man who walked into the building and asked him while he was at his station if there were any developments in the Michelle case. The guy had a stutter. Now, the guard said he checked the morning paper, and when he turned his back, the guy bolted. And the guard was interested enough to, to follow, to go outside, and he saw the man driving off down Exchange Street in a light brown Pinto. So, again, I'm sorry, I think everybody's seeing the same car. They may not be describing it quite the same. Brown, beige, tan, small car. Uh, now, Detective Anthony Fantagrossi, who's in charge of the investigation of the Rochester Police Department, said that the man who killed Wanda Walkowitz is responsible for Michelle Mayenza's murder. There was something identical about the crime scene. Now, we don't know what that was, but we'll take his word for it. You know, Carmen Cologne's a little bit different. Similarities outweigh the differences, but a little bit different. Wanda and Michelle are identical. Now, the, the, the signature may be, and I got this from a source inside law enforcement in Monroe County, uh, may be that the, the killer defecated at the scene of the dump site, uh, and in the feces they found traces of secanol. That may be the thing that that, that connects the two cases. The thing that connects all three cases is that white animal hairs were found on all three bodies. Now, up until this time, nobody has mentioned initials. Nobody's talked about, it's an odd coincidence, but not that much of a coincidence. There's only three victims. If there's been 10 and they all had double initials, that might be a different matter. Uh, And a disproportionate number of little girls do have same first and last initials because parents think it's cute. And these girls were born in the early 60s when uh, Marilyn Monroe and Bridget Bardot were the two cover girls on uh, movie magazines. So the the, the real furor starts when there's an interview in the Democrat and Chronicle with a Dr. David J. Barry, a psychiatrist from the University of Rochester, and this is March 1974. And he said that it was more than just weird that the girls all had the same first and last initial. 
It was an indication that the killer was a criminal mastermind who knew the girls ahead of time so he could pick ones with alliterative names. Now, Dr. Berry even bent geography a little bit. He said Carmen had been left in Churchville. Actually, it was Riga, uh, Wanda in Webster, and Michelle in Madison. And well, I'm surprised he didn't notice that the abductions were on Main Street West, Conkey Avenue, and Webster <laughs> Avenue, which is the same three initials. But it's, the odds are approximately the same as they would be if all three girls had been, say, born in the, mo- in the month of May. Right. And if all three girls had been born in the month of May, I don't think anyone would say that's why they were chosen by the killer. Uh, the, the killer is a sex criminal. He is a pedophile and a child molester. He's killing the girls because they're the only witnesses to his crime. Um, and again, assuming that we're talking about one person. The, I do not believe, and I've never believed, that he cared how these little girls spelled their names. And the community started thinking, how could he possibly know who he was? He must have been a, a substitute teacher. He must have been this. Mm-hmm. How would he know all three of them? And all these you know, searches went on to, to try to link the three girls in some way, and it couldn't be done. I mean, in broad strokes, they were all very similar. But you look up close, they didn't have anything in common. They lived in different sections of the city. They, they went to different schools. Um, now, the one thing that I didn't mention when we were talking about Wanda is that I went back to the Democrat and Chronicle on the morning before Wanda was abducted. And it would be April 2nd, 1973. And I looked at the Democrat and Chronicle, and there was a big article at the beginning of the B section, the local section, about the best place to buy baby bunnies to give as Easter presents. And the, uh, the article was an interview with Joseph Jonger of Joseph Jonger's Jungle Trader Pet Shop <laughs> at the corner of Webster Avenue and Parcell Street, which is just down the street from where Michelle would later be uh, abducted. And it's also interesting because that location is almost directly across the street from my favorite suspect who we developed during our investigation. And we and to be continued on that part. Uh, uh, to be continued on that. Now, I, 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 go ahead. I may want to move that in the chronological order right. of the interview. Now, uh, just, now we've got three crimes um hopefully, you know, in their minds, not more. So let's just so everybody's going to start to want to ask this. I know uh, it's going to be on their mind. DNA. Um, I understand that there was only DNA available or uh, collected or readable or whatnot uh, on one of the, on Carmen. Is that correct? That is not correct. Uh, There was, uh, there was semen found in all three bodies. But the, uh, the, the sample was used up uh, uh, for Carmen and Michelle uh, for the chemical test of the day to determine whether or not the killer was a secretor, whether or not there was blood in the semen, mm-hmm. which could then be used to, uh, to eliminate certain suspects. It was primitive by today's standards. They didn't even know DNA existed at the time. But with the Wanda case, they saved a little bit. So there is readable DNA from Wanda's crime scene, and that, of course, was used later on. And, and that, of course, a little has bit never been matched to be right. Never that, been matched that, with that once, Yeah, that, it, 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 if it did nothing, it it certainly was enough to eliminate. I also should point out that I my research has led me to believe that pedophiles, if not child molesters, pedophiles a child molester who hasn't necessarily acted out on his urge. Um, but they find each other. The, back in those days, there were little ads in the back of porno magazines for guys who liked little victims, and you could write in, and who knows what happened at that point. Later on, there were you know, the, the dark web service, these guys. And there was the, the Breckenridge case in, uh, in New Hampshire a few years back in which a, a guy who was abusing his, uh, his daughter and his niece uh, was exchanging child pornography with various people around the country. So to say that we've eliminated some of these suspects because of the DNA from the Wanda Walkowitz scene is not necessarily true. 
Uh, there, there's no guarantee that the person who abducted the, the girls was the one who killed them, the one who raped them. It could have been, they could have gone to a, a clubhouse and had horrible things happen there, which involved people who were neither involved with the dumping of the body or the abduction. That said, uh, the indication is that, that Michelle was, uh, was abducted and killed and dumped by this, by one man, um, just judging from the eyewitnesses, they all seem to see the same guy. He was one guy. And, of course, we have an indication that with Carmen, uh, there was a man and a woman involved in the abduction. Now, again, over a period of time, I mean, the, the police are continuing to work. They're certainly not convinced there won't be another one. Um, so, so they're not, you know, so they're, they're, there's a, uh, an urgency to it. And there are um, a group of suspects. Um, yes. that you mentioned, that Wikipedia mentions, and, and I certainly want to go through them. Um, uh, what astounded me was, uh, just even from the Wikipedia, which I, I mean, I, I'll tell you the, the three they cover are, uh, again, Miguel, which we've already talked about, the family member, uh, Dennis Termini, 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 Termini. Termini and Kenneth Bianchi, which we'll talk about in a moment, of course, Joseph uh, Nazo, you, of course, have a few more. But my my instant reaction, again, growing up in Rochester, it was like, wh what was with all these murders? In other words, these people were suspect because they had done other horrible things and and, and sometimes some of them to children. So they're they're They were picked or looked at partially because of, you know, their past criminal record. And it was like. I didn't know there were so many uh, psychopaths in Rochester when I was growing up, but there you go. Yeah, I was I was doing a book signing at the uh, the, the Lai Library, and a man, man raised his hand to ask a question, and he said, "Is there something in our water?" <laughs> exactly, that's my thought. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about. Uh, not necessarily in in, in, um, in chronological order, unless you want to, but the various people that came before the police uh, of a serious uh, nature of a possible suspect. Okay, the, probably the, the first suspect that, uh, that stood out was a fellow by the name of Dennis S. Termini. And he was a Rochester firefighter and a, a serial rapist known as the garage rapist. And the cops had been after him for a long time. And on, on January 1st, 1974, it was about four and a half weeks after Michelle Mayans' murder, he was caught in the middle of a rape. Mm -hmm. And he fled and committed suicide, shot himself through the head wow. uh, before he could be arrested. Now, although there were no indications that Termini was a pedophile, all of his victims were adult women, his car had white cat hairs in it. And that was the thing that linked the three crime scenes with the double initial cases. Uh, they were all found with, with white hairs on their, on their bodies. Uh, and detectives were able to place Termini in the area where Michelle was walking home when she disappeared. I've, I've tried and tried to figure out exactly how they did that. Uh, but being an open case, they, they're very closed-lipped. Mm -hmm. Now, he became a, a favorite suspect so strongly that in 2007, Termini's body was exhumed. His coffin was taken to the morgue, cracked open. body was removed from the coffin and placed on a table, and the medical examiner removed tissue sufficient for reading DNA. But there was no match. And again, no indication that he had a thing for little girls. And I think our killer or killers clearly has a problem uh, with pedophilia. I mean, right. we're, we're looking for a pedophile. That's the second primary suspect. And again, I don't think these people are eliminated because of DNA. They, 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 could, all, they could all have been in cahoots. They, they could have all been in the club. Was uh, a fellow named Kenny Bianchi. And he was a favorite suspect for the, for the reason that later in life, he became one of the Hillside Stranglers. And at the time of the double initial murders, he lived in the town of Gates. Uh, Bianchi and his older cousin, the late Angelo Buono, uh, killed at least 10 girls and women in the Los Angeles area in 1977 and 78. 
and Bianchi alone killed two more in the state of Washington before his arrest in 1979. Now, while in Rochester, he drove a black-and-white Cadillac, which fits with the, uh, the, the scene along Interstate 490. And following Carmen Colon's murder, he was questioned, as were many men who drove Cadillacs or LTVs. And when Bianchi moved to California, he told a friend that he had to get out of Rochester because cops thought he was the double initial killer. Now, it sounds a bit like a guilty conscience. Now, I know people who were interviewed in that same sweep, young men who drove their dad's luxury car and were asked, you know, if they were anywhere near where Carmen was seen running down the road. But they didn't leave town because of it. And Bianchi hadn't even been put on a suspect list yet when he was questioned. So now out of Bianchi's 12 known victims, not one had the same first and last initial. Uh, 11 of them were women. One was a child. And that one occurred somewhere in the middle. The Bono and Bianchi picked up a little girl and, and raped and killed her. But then they returned to uh, to adult women. So again, testing the waters perhaps with pedophilia, uh, but preferring adult women. Now, during Michelle Mayans' autopsy, Dr. Edlin tried to find fingerprints on the body by blowing iodine vapor across the skin which lodged on the fats and oils left there by the killer's sweat. One mark was found on Michelle's neck on which she was being strangled. Uh, a silver-plated piece of metal was pressed onto the area, and the iodine etched a copy of the print into the metal. And the impression was immediately photographed uh, with a New York State Police fingerprint camera, and it was believed that the print was made mostly by a wrist with a small portion of palm attached. Although the print had some crucial detail, it was nonetheless impossible to determine if it had been by a right or left wrist. Now, Bianchi was considered a serious enough suspect that the palm and wrist prints were taken in jail and compared to the mark found on Michelle's neck, no match. And then later on, there was a DNA test, and there was also no match. So Bianchi is, in some people's minds, off the hook, but as I said... I'm not sure that this is necessarily a DNA case. Let me let me talk, let me tell you about Joseph Nazo. Yeah, there's another uh, name he, for you. There's another another lesson in, in coincidence, perhaps. First, we've got we've already got two guys who had to be the guy, but turned out to maybe not be the guy. And then Joseph Nazo was arrested in California for being a serial killer. Uh, he was originally from Rochester. He married a Rochester girl a Rochester girl who grew up across the street from my dad. Uh, and in, in California, he killed a series of women whose names were Cheryl Carter, Marina Mitchell, Tracy Tafoya, Pamela Perkins, and bizarre beyond bizarre, another Carmen Cologne. So the, People in Rochester were just elated. As the families, the victims were elated. This has to be the guy. We got him. We got him. He goes on trial, and the trial is, again, really bizarre. Not only is he a grade-A creep and weirdo, but he insisted on defending himself. Uh, one day, he was cross-examining his ex-wife, and it deteriorated into a, a marital squabble in the witness stand. It's unbelievable. Nothing like I've ever seen in a murder trial before. But he was convicted and currently resides on California's death row. But like I said, here we get an important lesson in coincidence. Nazo liked to keep lists and scrapbooks of the women he had raped and killed. And in his notes, it became clear that in some cases, he did not know the names of his victims. Uh, and when he did, it was their street name, not their real name. Uh, he took note of many things about the crimes, uh, body types, amount of resistance. Did they put up a fight? Uh, photos taken. Uh, he took pictures of them alive and dead. And uh, never once does he mention the alphabet, initials, uh, the significance of the victim's names. Uh, and his DNA, of course, is not a match for the DNA found on the uh, on Wanda Walkowitz. You know, I, I, I decided I was impressed with the number of Rochester investigators who won thought Carmen was killed by one killer and Wanda and Michelle were killed by another, and two, never bought into the initials bit. 
they thought it was an interesting coincidence, but no more than that. That was because what the public thought was this killer did was improbable. Uh, if, if the killer predetermined who his, his victims were going to be, uh, how did he know that Carmen Cologne would be going to the drugstore that day? Right. How did he know that Wanda was going to be going to the store that afternoon? How did he know that Michelle wasn't going to be walking home with her sister and her mother like every other day, but alone that day? Uh, and the answer is he most likely didn't. No, it sounds, uh, the, it the, sounds the killer really... or killers, they're, they're cruising the inner city right. looking for soft right. targets. That, there Girls you go. by themselves. Crime of opportunity. That's exactly right. And it doesn't make it any less evil, and it doesn't make the victims less important. But it, I started to think, if the initials don't matter, maybe there were crimes that were unconnected to these because the victims didn't fit the false criteria. And that was the line of thinking that led me almost immediately to another suspect, a fellow by the name of Theodore F. Given Jr. Now, at 1 p.m. on Saturday, August 3rd, 1974, this is... Uh, a little less than nine months after Michelle Mayenza's murder. Um, Theodore Gibbon is driving his car into Lions Park at the end of Kentucky Avenue off Long Pond Road in the Rochester suburb of Gates. And there he lured two little girls to the trunk of his car saying he had baby bunnies in, the, in his car. Would they like to come look? And when they went to look, he grabbed them both at the same time, dumped them in the trunk, and slammed the lid on them. He told me that they were stunned and never had a chance to put up a fight. He drove them to an abandoned house, tied one up in the basement, and took the other upstairs to a room with a mattress and attacked her. He then put the girls back in the car and returned them to the park and set them free. And he, he, was, he was caught because people in the park saw the drop-off and got a good description of his car which was a 1965 Plymouth Valiant with this distinctive racing stripes with tape that were partially peeling. Then a couple of things happened. First, a cop beat the crap out of Gibbon. Uh, he was a child rapist and deserved what he got, but Gibbon had to be hospitalized for an injured scrotum. And the whole matter turned into a police brutality story in the newspaper. Now, the other thing was a reporter, smart reporter, asked the Gates police chief, who was then only 27 years old, if maybe this was the double initial killer. And the chief said, oh, no, these girls had different first and last initials. Besides, he didn't kill them. He let them go. And there were other differences, too. It's a Saturday, not a weekday. Now, maybe it's me, but the similarities were more impressive than the differences. A man, a pedophile predator, cruises for soft targets in his car, snatches them, and takes them somewhere to do bad things. Who cares what their initials are? And so we found Ted, and uh, and they, they 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 hauled him in and basically hospitalized him <laughs> by you know um, almost castrating him, and he lived on um, Parcells Avenue near Webster Avenue, basically across the street from the Jungle Trader Pet Shop that was selling baby bunnies on the morning of Wanda Walkowitz's disappearance. By this time, my head's ready to explode. <laughs> so we, so I, I, uh, I, I, he is eventually convicted of the of the attempted rape of the girls in the Gates Park, and sentenced to ten years in prison. So I reviewed Given's criminal record. We found that he was always in trouble. He was in jail more in than he was out. Uh, he was in jail at the time of Carmen Cologne's murder which may in some policeman's mind have eliminated him, but he was out briefly for both Wanda and Michelle's disappearances. At the time of Michelle's murder, he's sleeping on his dad's couch, 200 yards from Michelle Mayenza's home. His home was across the street from the pet shop, and he's in the neighborhood, just as the witness Cynthia Nicoletti had told us. Uh, Given served 10 years for his crimes in Gates. He was released from prison in 1984. He remained free until September 1986 when he raped a little girl in Parma following a home invasion and was caught. And he's been locked up ever since. He was in prison until 2010. 
when the Department of Corrections couldn't hold him any longer. He was civilly committed to an institution for the criminally insane, and that's where we found him, and I started a, uh, a pen tail relationship with him, I guess you'd call it. Found a, uh, the mugshot for Ted that was taken at the time of his 1974 arrest, and we put it amongst an array of other photographs. There was a photo of me when I was in my 20s in there. And, <laughs> and they picked you, and, right? <laughs> and we gave it to Cynthia Nicoletti, the little yep. girl who'd seen the killer's face when he had Michelle. Now, hold, how car. old was she now? Uh, About? Oh, boy. She's I a, mean, an she's adult? Was she an adult? Now. She's an adult. Like, okay. yeah, she, was, she, was, she was Michelle's age, so she would be in her 50s. Got it. She looked at an array of eight photographs, went through them, and went, boom, that's the guy. And she picked out Ted Given. So I began writing to Ted. I told him I was working on a book about the double initial cases. And since he at least once stalked and abducted female children in his car, I figured he might have some insight into what made the double initials killer tick. And his response was fascinating. First of all, he said he preferred the name Alphabet Killer. Why he would have a preference, he didn't say, but he felt Alphabet Killer was correct and Double Initials Killer was not. So I should get it right. There was a book called Alphabet Killer about the case, Slender yes, Volume, yep. written by a woman who specializes in the paranormal. And uh, the book was made into a movie also called Alphabet Killer, uh, written by Tom Malloy, with whom I've had the pleasure of working on this very subject. Cool. And the movie was highly fictionalized and starred Eliza Dushku as a police officer obsessed with the case, shot in Rochester, and that was all interesting. Ted wrote to me, and he said, I'm certainly not the alphabet killer, using the correct name. But since he was getting on in years, he thought it was time that he gave himself a good look in the mirror. And we exchanged letters for a year. And he told me in gruesome detail how and why he had committed the Gates abductions. He drew me maps. He said that he lured the girls to his car with promises of baby bunnies. He picked up the girls, threw them in the trunk, closed the lid. It happened so fast that the girls didn't even have a chance to make a sound, and no one noticed him doing it. I made me think about the abduction of our three victims, how it could have happened on a public street without anyone noticing, and the answer might be simple. It could have happened very fast. I asked Ted if he had any insight into why he was a pedophile. And he told me he had it all figured out. Hmm. When he was 16 and in prison and being repeatedly raped, he'd gotten his hands on a 1960s-style porn magazine. Um, it was a nudist colony magazine. Uh, and there was one image in there that got to him. It was a picture of a nudist family with men and women. Uh, they're having picnics and playing volleyball. And there was a little girl about 10 years old, naked, lounging by the pool in the background of one of the photos, and he became obsessed with that little girl. And Ted wrote, and I quote here, I first saw the image as a 16-year-old kid in Woodbourne Penal Institution in 1963 or 64 and used it for arousal and ejaculation, and it became the mental foundation upon which my sexual deviance germinated, unquote quite a sentence. Uh, the photo, he said, initiated his crimes, and when he was free, he frequently went to dirty bookstores and would look for that particular magazine with the photo of her, capital H, capital E, capital R, exclamation point. And when he saw a little girl that resembled the one in the photo, he couldn't control himself. Wow. And that's the last we heard from Ted, Ted then went under a, some sort of examination to his latest uh, round of of, uh, of questioning to see if he could be released into society, which he failed. And it occurred to me that he may have thought that I was only pretending to be a writer. And he wanted to demonstrate to me that he had enough self-knowledge to know what was going on in his screwed up brain in hopes that that would make people think he was okay to be released into society because uh, he, he failed his next examination and refused to answer any of my letters after that.
was he considered, even, you know, years later or whatever, was he considered uh, a suspect? He was considered a suspect by the state police uh, during a cold case uh, investigation that was done during the 1980s. He was still in prison. And uh, when DNA technology came around, his he was one of the first people tested and eliminated because he did not match the uh, semen left at the Wanda Walkowitz seam. As was Bianchi and Nazo and Termini. Were you able to contact either of the other uh, witnesses that may not have been as as um, got as good a look maybe as Cynthia? I, I was I was not. Um, I, I do I do not know their names. Right. They are they they appear uh, anonymously in. in, in various reports that were they were in the, the newspaper but apparent but you know they, they don't want to be found right we put side by side a picture of, of given and the best composite illustration of, of the uh, Michelle Mayenza killer and it's it's stunning I mean, the combination of round upper head and long jaw is very distinctive and they both have it. He was out, as you say, when the three murders occurred. Was he out long afterwards, or what, did he sort of go to prison on something else? Uh, I th- he did a stint in jail between Wanda and Michelle, but okay. he was out for both. He's in he's in prison for Carmen. He cannot be involved in the Carmen Cologne case at got all. Got it. Got it. So it could be either you know he got picked he picked up the the um, you know, the stick, uh, himself yeah, or with yeah, someone else afterwards. I mean, after how, Carmen, how does a pedophile feel? Right. <clears throat> pedophile living in Rochester, who's reading in the newspapers about Carmen Cologne. Right. Uh, gosh, that has to put an idea in their head. And with the, 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 the billboard that says, stop it before it happens again. And the famous graffiti that says, stop me before I do it again. You, there might even be the thought that I could do this and get away with it because they're looking for the guy that did the first one. Right. Right. So listen, um, I'm sure people are going to want to read this book. I know it's fascinating. As I said, I read it. It's a quick read. Uh, Nightmare in Rochester, the double initial murders. And you did have a private investigator, Donald Tubman, work with you on it. And so people can get that book, Amazon and whatnot. Do you have other things like websites or Facebook pages or things? Well, if you, if you, if you uh, put the search term into Amazon, Michael Benson, True Crime, you'll get a page that includes all of my books. Great. Uh, my most recent one is called The Age of Zodiac, which is a fresh look at the Zodiac Killer in California in the late 60s and early 70s. And, uh, of course, there's... Uh, there's uh, The Devil of Jesse Junction about my childhood trauma. And then there are a couple of uh, books I did about Rochester crimes for Rochesterians who are interested in, in local stories. Uh, and that's called Mosquito Point Road, which was the original name for Ballantine Road in Chile. And uh, the other one's called Haunting Homicides, mm-hmm. which has a cover that was, uh, it was uh, photoshopped from a picture of the Starlight Drive-In, which is oh, a, yeah. back in our day. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this has been a wonderful time today. And um, again, people who are interested in in, in the case can certainly uh, get the book. Um, I am certainly going to be coming back to Mr. Benson for uh, some of his other works. This has been a great... I'm looking forward to it, James. Great interview um, and easy to do. And so again, I want to thank uh, Michael Benson today. Uh, thanks so much for thank joining so us much on for Murder. Having me. This has been fun. Take care now. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And I would be remiss if I didn't thank my listeners. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me today on Murder Most Foul. And I hope you'll tune in next time or to some of my prior podcasts, which, of course, can be found on any podcast platform. You can also go by my website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. And uh, leave me a comment via my email address, which is posted there. Until next time, take care.